The gospel reading for the morning is uh, from the 15th chapter of Luke, one of three parables Jesus tells in that chapter, the parable that's, that has been called Jesus' masterpiece. In, uh, for Lent, we have been dealing with biblical places, geographic places, but also spiritual locations. The first week it was wilderness, that place that Jesus sent Jesus, or God sent Jesus, and often where we find ourselves, maybe not because we wanted to go there, but because God pushed us there. The second week, Bethany. If Jesus had a home in his ministry, it was probably Bethany with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Last week, Samaria, that place of detour, uh, where Jesus had to go, therefore expanding out the categories of where the good news should be proclaimed. And today, far country. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property on dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. He gladly would have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have uh, enough bread to spare, but I am here dying of hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, so please just treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off, and he went to his father. But while he was still far off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, this elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. 
As a relative newcomer to Texas, I don't think I need to tell any of you about the persistent drought that has episodically plagued this region and so many regions of our country over the last several years. Droughts have a way of unveiling surprising revelations. For years, the lake on Jack Meborn's ranch, and not far from here, held a secret at its murky bottom, a 1999 Chevrolet Monte Carlo. In the middle of a severe drought uh, three or four years ago, his grandson was the first one to see the top of the car peeking out from the surface of the lake, which was way down. Uh, Mr. Meborn called the constable, and with the help of a diver and a tow truck, they got the car out of the lake. Inside, still buckled into the driver's seat, was the remains of a young woman who'd been missing since 2008. The young woman's family had reported her missing, but had no idea what had happened to her during those three or four agonizing years. The rancher and the constable found themselves calling a cruel thing like the drought a sort of blessing. If it wouldn't have been for the drought, the constable said, she'd probably still be in that car at the bottom of that lake. A hundred or more miles away, the drought hurt Donna McWilliams. She and her husband lost trees. They had to sell cattle because of the lack of hay. But it also helped her in a strange way. She's the sister of the young woman whose body was found in the car in the lake. Ms. Oliver's relatives had mailed flyers with her pictures. They had visited homeless shelters and hospitals, all always wondering what happened to her. I guess closure is the word, Ms. McWilliams says. Now at least we don't have to wonder anymore. I do think drought is horrible. But if anything good can come out of it, this is probably it. This is a strange blessing. In the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus tells three parables. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost child. People get lost, perilously lost, all the time. And when sooner or later we end up caught in a drought, real drought or spiritual drought, Everything about our life is exposed. Now, do you and I have to get this lost, this dramatically, in order to be exposed so that we'll finally turn around and find our way home? I'm not sure about that. I, I'm pretty sure there are several people here this morning for, for whom far country, at least geographically and spiritually, isn't that far away. But however we are lost, Whatever tricks or cover-ups we have used to navigate through life, sooner or later in our life, everything gets exposed. Once we are lost, whenever we are lost, there are really only two questions. How did this happen? And what now? How does this happen? It could just be our own ignorance or naivete. A recent book, Dear Me, Letters to My 16-Year-Old Self, tackles the question, what would you say to yourself if today you could write a letter to your 16-year-old self? Well-known figures from J.K. Rowling to Hugh Jackman weighed in on this from 70s rocker Alice Cooper. Trashy girls are exciting for about five minutes. 
Keep your eye out for a really good-looking church girl, then you'll get the best of both worlds. P.S., I think coffee may really catch on. Open a store, call it Star something. From Susie Orman, dear Susie in 1967, I just wanted to write you this letter because I think it is important for you to know that you really do not need to be as sad as you currently are. Think great thoughts, always relish small treasures. Now stop wasting time being sad. Do you hear me? And this from actor James Woods. Be proud but humble, be strong but caring, listen more than you may be inclined to, talk less, and most importantly, call your brother on July 26, 2006 and tell him he has to go to a different hospital. It's okay to fall, but not okay to stay on the ground. Cherish the dead you once loved so carelessly they still live in your heart. That last letter especially might have stung the younger brother in our parable. He wished his father was good as dead. That's what getting the inheritance early was all about. He fell hard and fast, and truly he did not know how to get up. Maybe he was just naive to the perilous ways of the world, but maybe he was trying to hide, hide from his family, hide from his past, hide from a future he didn't want to enter. Sometimes we hide so well from everybody else that we end up hiding also from ourselves and then we cannot find our way out. That's one of the many ways we experience fear. Fear can get us lost really quickly. Bruce Springsteen's music expresses this, I got up on my side and I was just trying to survive. But what if what you do to survive kills the things you love? Fear's a powerful thing. It can turn your heart black you can trust. It'll take your God-filled soul and fill it with devils and dust. When the younger son, whatever he is doing in that distant field to survive, it is killing him. So often, we feel we get lost by being on the move. You know, you drive down a street and take a wrong turn and speed up and take another wrong turn and then another one and you're lost. Sometimes, we get lost by standing still, by letting fear paralyze us, by feeling so trapped. C.S. Lewis once wrote, if you look for truth, you may find comfort at the end, but if you look only for comfort, you'll get neither comfort nor truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking at, to begin with, and in the end, only despair. So whenever in your life, you are at the point where you are so lost, and this happens to all of us. Whether it be by ignorance or naivete, whether it be by trying to hide or shaking with fear, whether it be trapped in your own bad choices or events just conspire against you, the question then is always, what now? I'm lost. What now? Luke says in that distant country, the prodigal came to himself. That's a long journey sometimes, to come to ourself. 
especially when we are so lost. But he came to himself so that he could ask the question, what now? You may know there's a booming cottage industry these days on the art and technique of apology. Elizabeth Bernstein of the Wall Street Journal has noticed this and reports, along with helping people reconnect with old flames or childhood friends or even long-lost relatives, the internet <clears throat> is giving rise to a new phenomenon, the decades-late apology. Uh, the web allows <clears throat> us to converse by email, which sometimes make us braver or more impulsive, even occasionally more thoughtful about what we will say. There are even websites that'll help you with your 30-year apology that's late. Thepublicapology.com, perfectapology.com, dedicated to facilitating our quest for absolution. But the younger child situation in the middle of that distant pig field was not one of needing a better technique to apologize. His life was utterly broken and so lost. He needed to get home. And not just in the geographic sense. He wasn't sure how to manage that. Besides, and this will come as no surprise to any person in this room, forgiveness is complicated. It is messy. It's a confusing business. According to a recent survey, most Americans have a desire for more forgiveness in their lives, but they're more critical of choosing who and how to forgive. 62% of American adults said they need more forgiveness in their personal lives. 94% want to see more forgiveness in the country. That's interesting. Uh, apparently, I'm to think you need a lot more forgiveness than I do, so there you go. Researchers found that even though the United States is filled with people who are usually forgiving, a majority of Americans believe that forgiveness is conditional. 60% said forgiving someone would first absolutely depend on the offender apologizing and changing. The text tells us that the hungry prodigal came to himself. He remembered who he really was, and immediately he remembered his home. Those two things always go together. When we are spent, when we are out of resources, when we are confused or exposed, the Holy Spirit reminds us of our true home, and then we remember who we really are. As Craig Barnes has pointed out, our true home is not Austin or New York or California or China. It has nothing to do with where you grew up or where you, you live now. It has everything to do with God. God is the one who establishes your true identity. At the core of that identity is not some poor kid trying to make good, not some rich kid trying to blow it all. At the core of your identity is not a successful powerful, popular person, nor is it a person who's hurt, despairing, or bored. At the core of your identity is heaven's proclamation that you are beloved by God. That's who you are. Like the younger brother, if you hang around pigs long enough, you will get confused and start to act like a pig. You are not a pig. 
You do not have to just grab at life. Life has been given to you, but you do have to return home from that distant country to enjoy it. The prodigal had no mystical experience. He just looks up from a life he did not enjoy, and then he remembers his home, that he comes to himself. The prodigal knows he's made huge mistakes in that distant country. He doesn't deserve that place back home, but there's no place else for him to go. What's he gonna do? So he starts over and starts home. As he does, he rehearses the lines he's gonna say. I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. I do this sort of thing all the time. You know, when I'm anticipating a really difficult conversation, I play out imaginary scenarios. I have a dialogue with shadow figures. I I do that because I wanna be prepared, you know? I wanna have a plan. I'm looking at a room of people who love to have a plan. The prodigal's plan is to be a hired hand. He's not planning on being forgiven. He's not planning on being restored as a child. Maybe that's because he thinks he doesn't deserve that, but maybe, just maybe it's because he doesn't want to do it. As long as he is a hired hand, he can still be responsible for his own life. He will work for wages, he could get his act together, save up some money, then maybe he can leave again. As a hired hand, if he doesn't like his wages, he could complain and pull all the other hired hands together. Maybe they could form a union or something. If it's just a job, he'll get a better deal from his father than he was getting with the pigs. But his plan will not work. When it comes to the grace of God, there is no deal to be made There's just grace, and it simply flows out of God's heart, ready or not, here it comes. You know, we may repent in stages. I think maybe the prodigal repented in stages. First, we realize how bad and lost we are, and then we turn away from the distant country, and then we come home because we're in trouble. And early on, we try to make deals with God. God, if you will get me out of this mess, I will go on a mission trip. I'll teach middle school Sunday school. Uh, I'll give 20% of my income to the church. But eventually, we come to realize that God will only receive us as a beloved child. No one ever enters the kingdom of God as a hired hand. It was a famine and not a drought. But in that lost, far country, everything the younger son used to get by in his life was exposed. Every fake thing, every false pretense, every frail strategy and weak plan for living life on his own terms was laid bare as the utter failure it was. And that day, When he realized all that wasn't working and he came to himself, that was, hard as it was, one of the two best days of his life. 
Richard Rohr has written, God's one-of-a-kind job description is that God actually uses our problems to lead us back to who we were truly made to become. God is the perfect recycler. And in the economy of grace, nothing is wasted, not even our worst sins or our most stupid mistakes. That, that's the truth that the prodigal son learned the very hard way. It's a truth that would make a very worthy note for us to write to our 16-year-old self or 36-year-old self or 66-year-old self or 96-year-old self. God's one-of-a-kind job description is that God actually uses our problems to lead us back to the person we were made to be. In the economy of grace, nothing is wasted not even our worst sins. God is the perfect recycler. God will always lead us home from whatever distant country we have gotten ourselves into. God will lead us home and God will rejoice. And that embrace, that embrace we get when we get home, God will never, ever let go.